0: Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a Changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. My guest in today's episode is Terry Beswick. Terry is a British woman of colour in her 30s, who currently lives in Belgium. She runs her own private consultancy that focuses on peace and conflict within foreign policy. And she's particularly keen on drawing out the links between this area of policy and questions of social justice within Europe. I started by asking Terry to reflect on her first experiences of moving to Europe, what it was that had prompted her to consider this, and what those experiences were like.
1: The first place I ended up was in Rome. It was between my second and third year of university. I had this idea that I wanted to maybe try living abroad at some point and didn't have any clue how to do it, and I happened to have a housemate who'd done the certificate of English language teaching to adults, so uh, like an English language teaching qualification, and she was like, well, if you do this qualification, you can pretty much work anywhere in the world, because it's recognised everywhere, and so I was like, wow, this, this would be a great way to enable me to move abroad, possibly, later on, and I really loved Rome. I've been on holiday there for a short time, fell in love with the city, and I thought, why not do myself a course there so I spent four weeks of that summer originally it was going to be four weeks um doing a course uh the English language teaching certificate in Rome so that was the first step and that was 2004 yeah 2004
0: four weeks in Rome that was the original plan what really happened
1: yeah, so the having thought I would be there for my four weeks, um, the lady that I rented a room from in the um in the apartment, we ended up totally hitting it off despite the complete language barrier between us and she was like, Why don't you stay for the rest of the summer? And and yeah, I mean who says no to an opportunity to spend a whole summer in Rome. So clearly I did. And that was yeah, it was life changing. It was a completely new experience of how you have your day-to-day routine but within an incredibly beautiful setting that is very much focused on pleasure and social life which was new to me uh, yeah completely new so i was dragged back uh, by having to finish my third year of of university but by then it was clear that yeah this is a pit stop i come back do what i need to do finish my degree and then head out and ideally head back to rome as soon as i can because it was just such a different lifestyle to what I was used to. I was used to a work, oh, sorry, I lived to work. Sorry, uh, context in in the UK, and Italy was just a different ball game. It was about social life, family, friends, good food, quality, and time, which I completely became addicted to that way of thinking. So that was why I was just trying to figure out how to get back as soon as possible.
0: You finish your degree and you. Decided to try out life somewhere else. Where did you go next?
1: Um, so when I when I first left, I spent about a month actually. Now I remember in Zaragoza because my cousin was doing Erasmus there. So I decided that I would fly to Zaragoza on my way to Rome, spend some time there, just because why not? Um, and most of the teaching starts in September, so I had a little bit of time. And then I made my way down to Rome. And then since then. There's been lots of little jumps around Europe. So from Rome, spent a little bit of time in Paris. After Paris, back home for a little bit and then to Brussels. That was ended up being six months. And then from Brussels to Amsterdam for what turned out to be five years. A brief stint in Jordan. And then after Jordan, back to, to Europe again and ended up back in Belgium, which is where I find myself now
0: those different moves what were they what were they motivated by
1: it was such a variety of things um when I I mean Rome was clearly I just want to live in Rome (laughs) which is kind of yeah that's pretty good motivation um Paris that was more planned in the sense that I was I'd finished my master's degree um and I I could write my thesis from anywhere and I thought, ah, if I want to work, at this point I decided I wanted to work more in international politics and I thought, well, it's a good idea to brush up on my French, let me go to Paris, I will write my thesis, teach English to survive and brush up on my French and this will be a good strategy to start my career. I would say that it's it's all been a series of coincidences. Uh, that doesn't mean that I guess there's been no... There's nothing that's been part of that I wanted to or I was motivated. But I think my motivations have been shaped always by some very personal, uh, maybe personal goals about how I want to live, wanting to live on my own, for example, and not in a shared house. And where can I do that? How can I afford enough money in a context to do that? It's been shaped by what is an interesting thing to do next in my career And it's been shaped by global politics, it's been shaped by the financial crisis, it's been shaped by the generational issues that came out of that of seeing that you were never really gonna be able to have the adult milestones and trajectory that your parents had after the economic crisis. There's no buying a house, there's no long-term security, there's no nothing, that's all gone. So I was given a choice of, I can either see all of this insecurity and just be batted around in the wind by it. Or I can just see it as, well, I don't have that anyway. And that gives me a certain freedom to pick up and move and try and, yeah, try my luck wherever I can.
0: I think that's a really great analysis of kind of the economic conditions that you have had to live with because of the industry that you work in, um, despite the fact that you have a master's level qualification, but also not just the economic conditions, but the kind of inadvertent way in which particularly European freedom of movement has meant that you've been able to move around Europe with relative ease. You've been able to cross those borders with relative ease, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's been completely fundamental to how I've lived my life my ability to survive in some cases um as in being able to work and pay for yourself and not be reliant on anyone or any state or any anything it's i've only been able to do that because i was able to say it's not possible here right now in this moment or under these conditions but it might be possible there so let me go there and I think if I was trapped, and I do use that word very consciously, if I was trapped in one place and conditions changed that were unfavourable, I would be in a, a much more precarious position. It would change my ability to be independent, my ability not to have to rely on on kind of uh, welfare or social security. All of these things about how I live my life are rely on me being able to say, okay, not working here, might be able to work better there, let me do that. And so having that removed is is a huge deal. It's a huge deal.
0: What comes across so clearly in Terry's accounts of her personal movement history is the range of different rationalities for moving, the lifestyle, the changing economic circumstances, the looking for work in different places. There are many similarities between her narrative and that of many of the younger people that Mike Danby interviewed on our behalf for the project. People who've had to be highly flexible and adaptable in finding work for themselves in what are changing economic circumstances. I think it's also very clear from Terry's account that movement is fundamental to the way that she lives her life and I deliberately use the term movement here because I'm not sure that migration, with all its connotations of settlement, of being some kind of one-off move, really captures what her life has been like over the last 10 to 15 years. I think she also implies a sense of freedom That sense of freedom that we had communicated so clearly to us through our questions with our citizens panellists about freedom of movement, and you can read more about that in the report authored by Karen O'Reilly and Catherine Collins for the project, that focuses precisely on the significance of freedom of movement, not as a legal term, but in terms of the way that people understand themselves, their lives, their migrations. And as we continued talking, it became very clear that her love for Europe was also met with some kind of scepticism around the European project and the inclusivity of the European project. And in many ways, this tension that she so aptly describes between enjoying the life that's available to her in other European countries and finding certain frustrations and constraints embedded in the European system is very common to what we hear when we talk with lots of other British citizens who live in the EU27. It was clear that she had a value for being European, for having that passport that meant that she could cross borders with ease. It was clear that she had built her life around that. And as we proceeded, as we continued to discuss, it became clear that Brexit had some other meanings for her as well. So take a listen to what she had to say about her response to Brexit.
1: Yeah, I mean, Brexit has been, it's managed to touch everything from the incredibly mundane, um, from the quite personal, to obviously the much larger things that you see and, and read about and Yeah, I'm not one of those people that are like, oh, I'm dreadfully shocked by Brexit. I don't understand how you can be shocked by Brexit. But I I guess if you have zero reflection on other people's experiences of life (laughs) and that not everyone's life was ticking along nicely and that you had this idea that the 90s solved everything and liberal democracy was wonderful and everyone was winning, then, yeah, I'm, I, then you probably are very shocked. I wasn't particularly shocked, in the, and I... In this study, I had, I, in these discussions that we've had, I brought up the fact that I don't think a lot of people of colour were particularly shocked by Brexit. I do. It's that frustration, and the same with the Trump phenomenon. It's a real frustration when you have people... You say, yeah, I just I can't believe this happened. I just I can't believe that there's all this xenophobia and I can't believe that there's all this latent hatred or division. And you feel like, but how many conversations did you have with that black friend or that um, British Indian friend or that said, yeah, actually... Britain's quite racist, or this thing happened, it was quite racist. And you assured them, like, no, 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 you're being oversensitive. Racism isn't as bad as it used to be. Like, we've made so much progress. You know, you're probably being a little bit sensitive to it. Well, it turns out, sorry, guys, we were right. Like, this was always there. It didn't go away. It may have changed form. And so a frustration of, Having told people that there were, there were these issues with mis- misogyny, there were these issues with race, there were these issues with a jingoistic obsession with empire like everything has to be great British this, British that. Every TV program, if it doesn't have the word British in it, is apparently not allowed to air anymore. It's when you had people that were telling you that this was the case, and then you had these lovely people who consider themselves very liberal and very open but couldn't face that fact head on I think that was probably more frustrating than the people who have always been at least clearly open about their prejudices and the way they see the world um in a very caricatured way of like it's when a poor person shouts or attacks someone of color if that is your narrow definition of racism okay but if your definition of racism is is there an idea that things that are white and European are better than things that are not white and European ie you know food that comes from other cultures is not as refined music is not as uh, that comes from other like black or brown cultures is not as classy the definition of beauty is that the lighter that you are or the straighter hair you have the more European features you have The more beautiful you are, then yeah, I mean, we live in a, a structurally and culturally racist society. That doesn't mean that everyone is evil, it just means that that's how we see the world. This kind of frustration that we do live in a supremacist society without realizing it, not because we're, and I say we because it's also me. I'm not immune to it just because I'm black, but maybe I notice a bit more that. There's an inconsistency and a certain hypocrisy between holding up Britain as being perfect, and or at least something to be worked towards, something that is an end vision of a a ultimately good society, and then the reality that that only exists as long as you, the closer you are to their norms, the better your life is, and the further away, the worse your life is, and that means that people of colour and women who've always had to adapt to the dominant world of men or masculinity and whiteness, we're always aware that we've been adapting. It's like be more male if you want a top job or be more white, speak more white if you want a a good place in society. It's always been that it's our job to adapt. So you notice when you have to adapt more and when, when it gets harder.
0: Brexit then, for you, wasn't a surprise, but nevertheless has an impact for you. Would that be a correct way of framing it?
1: Yeah, it has a huge impact because I felt that in a very, I guess a very personal way, you feel that you did what you were supposed to do in the sense that you were adaptable, you didn't sit back and wait for things to fall into your lap you took advantage of whatever opportunities you could and so that's what I did but in the end it means that I don't know how I'm going to continue my life I guess so for example I work for myself I have and I'm building up my own business but if that doesn't work as well here in Belgium and it would work better somewhere else for me to do that. I no longer have that flexibility to say, okay, the best and most sensible thing for me to do, to be, it's not just about being successful, it's also about maintaining this independence, um, would be to move, that's gone. At the same time, if the same opportunities to work internationally don't exist in the UK, what am I gonna do in the UK? I don't know how to plan the rest of my existence, like, it's, it's, it's all up in the air, and in terms of relationships, yeah, my, my relationships are with people of lots of different nationalities, my friendships, my personal life, my parents live away, my brother lives away, but outside of Europe. I don't know what that means for how I maintain these relationships. What if I choose to be with someone who is from another nationality? What, yeah, I, I honestly don't know what any of this means for, for who I am going forward from a work perspective, from a personal perspective, from a social perspective. No clue what course I'm supposed to take. And the uncertainty about how it's been handled, which was predictable, makes it even worse. It's the fact that I don't know if I can order my sofa because they're not sure that they can deliver it from the UK which is a minor, a minor inconvenience, but I don't know whether I can transfer money between my accounts. Where am I supposed to put my pension? Do I keep it in euro? Do I keep it outside of the UK? Do I put my savings into the... What am I supposed to do? And no one can tell me. I'm trying to make sure that I'm being responsible and I'm planning ahead, but unfortunately I'm being more responsible than my own government, which is disappointing to say the least
0: what you've described is how you've built a career on being adaptable and flexible within a system that worked to support that flexibility and adaptability in terms of your work and in terms of the places that you lived. And now that system within which all of that was held and supported and facilitated looks set to be at risk because of a political decision and a set of political choices that have been made in a country that you don't even live in anymore. And you really communicate very well that sense of feeling let down.
1: Yeah, I do feel let down in the sense that um, this whole process and, and political moment was never inevitable. It's, a, I guess, a real dereliction of duty. Um, Somehow, a lot of the politicians seem to have missed the part about being public servants. And ultimately, I mean, I joke about the fact that I feel like I'm trapped in someone else's um, recruitment process because ultimately this is about who runs the UK. This is about who is which party and which person as head of that party can garner enough attention and profile and tap into weaponize use whatever public uh, feeling they can in order to be the you know the successful candidate unfortunately my life and ability to you know plan my pension or decide where i'm going to live has got caught up in their recruitment process and that's utterly ridiculous if this was about public service we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now because it would have been entirely focused on the practicalities understanding well what do we need to do to understand how this is going to affect different people differently we need to measure that we need to consult we need to be transparent we need to engage people in a process of okay for people who live this way or have this profile what does what is this going to mean for you what is this going and none of that has happened It's, it's we're just stuck in political theater which is of no interest and no use to me.
0: I think that's a really good reminder about how none of these processes, none of these, uh, you know, when when legal transformations take place in the way that they are doing because of Brexit, that you can't really dissociate their impact from people's lives um, and from all of the other things that shape people's lives and that intervene in people's lives. I think that works really well as a way of explaining both that extensive mobility that you've undertaken over the course of the last 15 years and also the decisions that you're making at the moment and also the impact of of Brexit on your life.
1: I I just want to, like everyone else, I'm looking for the same safety, security, and that means economic security, having a home, having a community, having a set of friends. I'm looking for the same things that everyone else is. In my case, I've had to move sometimes in order to maximise my ability to do that And when that ends, my ability to maximize my flexibility so that I can have that safety, that security, that society, that community, that disappears with it. I will be really at the beck and call of whatever legislation, whatever decisions, whatever regulations come in that affect me. And if it affects me well, great. And if it affects me badly, I will no longer have any possibility to, to mitigate that. Um, so, yeah, that's what it means to my personal life.
0: What I really like about how Terry explained what Brexit means for her is exactly how she was able to position this, both within the context of what might have produced the Brexit vote, this kind of sense of long-standing structural and institutional racism that she communicated so well, in our interview. But also how Brexit is personal, how this fundamentally changes the terms on which until now she has been living her life, which means that she's had to pause to think what she needs to do to secure her future. I think that her story is one that's replicated across Europe, among younger people who've made lives through being highly mobile who have experienced freedom of movement not in the sense that it was necessarily intended as a form of settlement, but as the ability to cross borders with ease, to seek opportunities for life, work and relationships even in other countries. And I think that this is a story that we don't hear often enough. These lives too are at stake through Brexit. As Terry demonstrates, she's had to change her plans for the future, or rather, she's had to fix her plan for the immediate future, staying in Belgium when she may have wanted to move on and go somewhere else. In bringing these real-life stories to the fore, I hope that we can show a little bit more about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. And I think it's clear that it means things which far exceed their legal status, even though that, of course, is an important element of their lives. I hope you've enjoyed listening and I'll be back soon. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Michaela Benson, and produced by Emma Halton at Art of Podcast. The series is part of a UK and a Changing Europe-funded research project, Brexit Brits Abroad, that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. We're really keen to hear from you about the issues and concerns we address in the programme, so please do get in touch with any thoughts, queries and questions. You can find our contact details on our webpage, Brexit Brits Abroad, or get in touch via social media. We're on Twitter at BrexPatsEU and we have a Facebook page Brexit Brits Abroad. Finally, in case you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.